The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Tuesday, it's February 27th, it is 9.50am here in the UK, making it 11.50am over in South Africa, where we're joined by our good friend Dr Peter Hammonds. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And what Peter has for us today is a presentation entitled The Real Story of What Causes Poverty and Its Cure. And before we get into that, I just want to let you all know, we did a show on the case for secession last week. We talked about a book that Peter has there. That is uh, going to be available later today in ebook form, and uh, it's also going to be available in hardcover shortly. Can you just tell the audience where they can go for that, Peter, and then start your presentation? Yes, thank you. So... By God's grace, uh, a case for secession book, 100 pages, 44 pictures and maps. It's uh, going to be available as a print-on-demand immediately through Lulu. And uh, you can get the details and links by going onto the christianlibertybooks.co.za website, christianlibertybooks.co.za. And that'll have the link to the ebook, uh, Smashwords, and the Lulu, I think Amazon as well, and uh, the printer on demand is available right now. And now the next question is um, the hard covers of the books we'll be making available from Christian Liberty Books. But you'll get everything um, what it, as it's available through ChristianLibertyBooks.co.za. By God's grace, we've, we've got 10,000 being printed right now. Excellent, Peter. And so, folks, you can also go back to last week's show uh, in which... Uh, that was the topic, and I'll just give you the exact title when I open up my website. Um, it was show number 2311, The Real Story of Successful Secession Movements Defeating the Globalist Centralization Agenda. Another fascinating topic. But where would you like to start us off today with the real story of what causes poverty and its cure, Peter? Over to you. Well, there's no doubt that centralization and socialism always cause poverty and decentralization and privatization tend to lead to greater productivity and uh, prosperity. So we've got officially 700 million people or 10% of the global population lives in extreme poverty, which according to global definition from the UN is less than 
zero dollars a day. So on less than two dollars a day, um, 10 percent of the world's population, over 700 million people are living in, by definition, extreme poverty. Well, what is causing poverty is a more serious question. And I think economics is at the backbone of a lot of political activities. This year, we've got elections in many parts of the world. There's a lot of protests coming from farmers in Netherlands and Germany and France, where governments are trying to crack down farmers. There seems to be a war against farmers, a war against food, a war against freedom, and uh, also against fuel. And all of this is leading to greater poverty, as you can see. And this is why it's such a major election issue in America and in South Africa. And of course, you've got the socialists promising, vote for us, we'll bring in more laws, more centralization, more socialism, more free welfare handouts, and everything will be better. But looking at the squatter camps, looking at the rundown ghettos and the refugee camps and the homeless people and tent cities growing up in San Francisco and Los Angeles and so on, Christians are struggling to respond to suffering with practical love. Now, the difference between productivity and income per person in the Western world compared to what they call the third world or the so-called developing world, although the developing world in many cases is more developing corruption rather than anything else, it used to be two to one in the 19th century. Now it's 70 to one, the difference between productivity and income per person between the first and the third world. And the escalating disparity, along with the impact of natural and man-made disasters, especially man-made disasters, most disasters in the world are man-made, and it seems um, climates cannot possibly cause as much suffering and hardship and poverty as governments do, uh, but it's been aggravated um, in so many different ways, and it's led to the flow of refugees by the millions, illegal aliens pouring into West nations, a tidal wave, if not a tsunami, of Muslims and Africans moving into Europe and moving into America, changing the demographics and remembering demographics as destiny. And uh, it's called a demographic time bomb. And Europe could become Arabia, London could become Londinistan, America could become Ameristan if we don't watch out. And that's why it's one of the big issues right now. Economics is driving the global um, uh, tsunami of illegal aliens pouring across borders because they fleeing poverty and in many cases they're going to where they think is more, not just opportunity, but more free things being dished out. Hence people saying they were fleeing the war in Syria did not go to Turkey, they didn't stop in Greece, they didn't stop in uh, Serbia, they kept going to Germany and Sweden. Why? Because Germany and Sweden had the most free things to offer. And so in many cases what you've got is welfare junkies and parasites pouring across the border. Similarly, those people who've got to France, they could stay in France, but they decide we've got to cross the channel and come to England because England will put us up in hotels and castles and give us all sorts of free things. And the Royal Navy will even assist us to invade the country illegally instead of sinking our ships. So one of the main responses of industrial nations as to poverty has been to supply generous amounts, excessive amounts in many cases of foreign aid to the poorer nations. But foreign aid has been accused of denying the poorer nations the chances to develop their own economies to viability. More aid does not encourage self-sufficiency and growth. The dumping of food surplus aid has damaged local agriculture in the long term. It's very hard for farmers to sell what's been given away. And I've seen that when I've been going in to Malawi and Mozambique, a place where people are starving, and I've dropped off large amounts of sacks of food and um, and even delivered 
uh, food uh, clothing that's been donated. Well, I didn't mean to, but next thing you find, you're undercutting the local industries. How can a poor tailor or shop owner sell clothes and blankets when we're giving them away free? And are we not undercutting the local e economics? And we must certainly love our neighbor and especially the deserving poor, but we do need to be wise and discerning in our aid so as to encourage responsibility and rehabilitation. So here's a couple of examples of abuse of relief aid. Since 1954, the United States has shipped millions of tons of food aid to India, but not to the Indian people, to the Indian government. And rats have consumed more than half of this food at the docks and the storage facilities. Because of Hindus' belief in reincarnation, rats and sacred cows may not be killed. They've got these holy hamburgers and they've got these um, rodents who apparently can't be killed. It would take a train 3,000 miles long to haul the grain eaten by Indian rats in a single year. And in fact, the rats eat uh, more food, uh, more than half the food um, that the people consume in India in a given year. And then you've got these sacred cows or holy hamburgers in India who eat enough food to feed most of Asia. And then you've got the Hindu temples containing vast fortunes of gold, rubies, sapphires, other precious metals in their statues, which they worship as idols. And so what's causing poverty in, Hindu, in India is actually Hinduism. Reincarnation beliefs, sacred cows, protected rats, idols made of gold and jewels, wasted resources and superstitions. That's causing poverty and starvation in the largest nation in Asia. And then you take Ethiopia in 1980s. It was a classic example of a man-made famine. Ethiopia could feed all of Africa. There's enough agricultural potential. Uh, in fact, Ethiopia used to be called the breadbasket of Africa. If it was properly run, Ethiopia could feed everyone in Africa. But when the communists took over in 1974 with the Red Terror and Haile Selassie was removed, the emperor, and in came uh, Colonel Mengistu, and he instituted forced removals and Marxist persecution. Uh, suddenly, with socialism, confiscations and nationalizations, abolishing incentive and punishing productivity, subsidizing irresponsibility, this caused starvation on a massive scale. And then with mass executions and forced removals of millions of people, many times from productive farmlands, which were confiscated and burned, and pushing them into the desert where they starved because they wouldn't listen to the commissar, the destruction of crops by the government, all of this caused the man-made famine in Ethiopia. And then the situation got even more bizarre. Um, I was sitting uh, at a major conference uh, opposite a an executive from Mercedes-Benz, Dame LeBenz, and um, I was intrigued. Um, I asked him questions, and, you know, has he been to Africa before? Yes, many times to Ethiopia. Well, what was he doing in Ethiopia? Well, he's going to Ethiopia because the government um, in Ethiopia requires all relief aid, all free relief aid, they'd charge a 100 cent import tax on, but then they'd also require brand new Mercedes-Benz trucks, Pentechnicans, 18-wheelers, to come with the um, free food in order to distribute them. And they had to be brand new and they had to be Mercedes-Benz, and the government... Uh, sorry, the relief agencies had to pay 100% import tax on these new trucks for transporting the food. And the trucks had to be signed over to the Marxist government of Ethiopia. Now, this at the same time that the communist government in Ethiopia spent $70 million, US dollars, on the anniversary of the revolution celebrations in 1984, 
half of which was for alcohol, most of that for vodka in particular. So in fact, much of the relief aid and food that was sent to Ethiopia to feed the starving went to the Cuban, Soviet and East German military who were involved in causing the famine, literally um, the very men who were burning down the crops and forced removing the farmers uh, were the ones getting the food. And some of the food was actually exported in payment for weapons. A whole lot of the food was on the dockside and being reloaded onto ships to Cuba and, and Russia and East Germany in, in exchange for payments for weapons. And this uh, Mercedes-Benz um, official knew all about this, and he, um, he tells me cheerfully, and I said, is this really going on? Yes, it is. I said, well, um, why don't you report this? And he said, well, we're doing very good business. And we've got a monopoly on selling our trucks to the Ethiopian government and, and these relief agencies there. And uh, so what were you doing in Ethiopia? Well, he said the Ethiopian government was complaining about our trucks breaking down. And I said, why were they breaking down? Well, they were breaking down because instead of transporting the food, the grain, they were transporting Soviet tanks to different areas. And of course, these uh, trucks were not built for transporting tanks, which are extremely heavy, 50, 60 tons in some cases. And uh, so obviously, he pointed out to him that, you know, if you continue to push this ridiculous demand of replacing the trucks, um, uh, we'll expose what you're doing. I said, why don't you expose what you're doing? He said, we're selling a lot of trucks. And this is just one example of the bizarre nonsense that goes on, although Ethiopia must be one of the most bizarre examples of all. While he had bands rocking against the famine and people digging deep for a dollar and youth groups and Sunday schools giving money for relief agencies like World Vision, um, I don't think it crossed their minds that they were paying a 100% import tax on free food being given to a communist government that was burning the crops and forced removing all of the farmers away from their farms that they were nationalizing for the government and that they were... Um, taking so long with some of the food deliveries that a lot of the food actually rotted in the dockside, that which wasn't re-exported to Cuba or East Germany or Russia. And, uh, you know, you couldn't write this sort of thing up for a Monty Python script. It's, it sounded absolutely bizarre. Well, in 1980s, I was also experiencing and witnessing another bizarre example of a man-made famine in Mozambique. Mozambique, which used to be a Portuguese province, an overseas province of Portugal, Portuguese East Africa. It was then a Marxist country because the communists had been given the country free uh, by the Portuguese government after a revolution in Portugal in 1974. The socialists in Portugal just handed over Mozambique to the communist terrorists of Felimo, Samora Michel's terrorists. They didn't have a referendum. They didn't allow an election. They didn't give the people of Mozambique a chance or a choice in the future. They just betrayed them. And the communist revolution in 1974 Five, imposed a socialist economy on the people. They confiscated all farms, they nationalized all factories, even laundromats. The most basic shops, little shops, were all nationalized. And hundreds of thousands of people were incarcerated in concentration camps. 75,000 people were executed, um, accused of being black marketeers, that means free market, reactionaries, a reactionary could be somebody who says, I'm hungry, um, and a counter-revolutionary, which could be anything from a pastor to an evangelist to a missionary. And they were publicly executed, 75,000 people. Food was exported to the Soviet bloc in exchange for weapons. Scorched Earth policy was launched to starve out the resistance to the Filimo communist government policy, which was burning down crops and burning down villages. 
And then there was bureaucratic waste and corruption, which became a growth industry. Economic poverty, social chaos resulted. And in Mozambique, it wasn't only communism that caused the starvation, it was also animism. The widespread practice of ancestor worship or witchcraft led to poor families sacrificing the last goat or chicken to appease the ancestral spirits. And you can just imagine how much starvation results when people are literally sacrificing to witch doctor or to the ancestral spirits the last nourishment and food they've got available for their family. Well, in Eastern Europe, I also came across, in Albania and Romania, gypsies, deliberately starving their babies and laying these malnourished infants on the sidewalks with a hat next to them to beg for money. And I reached down to put some money in one of these hats, and my local host in Albania said, no, you can't do that. These people literally starve their babies in order to make them more pitiful to get this kind of money. They're going to use this money for cigarettes and alcohol. You cannot support this. In India, uh, where my father-in-law did some missionary work, he said street people have actually been maimed or mutilated, or they have mutilated or maimed their own children to make them more pitiful and therefore more effective in begging. And in South Africa, I've spent many months on the streets of Hillbrow and Durban doing street evangelism, and I've seen the professional beggars at work. I've seen cripples letting down their strapped leg and stretching and walking unaid without their crutches. And I've seen blind people lift up their dark glasses to count the money in their hat, and even more recently, to check messages on their cell phone, iPhone and so on, you know, really. And I've seen um, street people, uh, I've spoken to street children who've said they can make hundreds of rand in a given day from begging. They can make more money from begging than they could from working. And in all too many cases, our casual, spontaneous handing over of some coins to strangers begging on the streets does more harm than good. Giving to beggars in the streets often goes to subsidizing drunkenness, smoking, drugs, prostitution, and gambling. And some of these beggars are child prostitutes and thieves using begging as a cover while looking for opportunities, either to be picked up as prostitutes or to be able to steal something like from a uh, person who's not paying attention, stealing a bag out of a person's backseat of the car or anything else like that. Then there's religious con men who know the terminology and can deceive and manipulate the unsuspecting into handing over large quantities of cash for spurious causes. I've also been one of those deceived by professional converts who let themselves to be counseled to Christ only to borrow money from the well-meaning evangelist. I've had all kinds of examples of how I've been conned on the streets. And, you know, when you first start, you don't understand how this works. I've had people coming to the Lord only to ask me, you know, can you give me five rand or ten rand or something like this? And on one occasion, I got one real sob story. And uh, I went, I didn't have any money, so I borrowed it from a friend who actually had to go and borrow it from his mother at work uh, to give me, for me to give to this person who was actually nothing but a liar. And then you see some of these converts drunk in the street just a few hours later uh, from the money that you gave them for food. And of course, then you start to give them just food. You don't give them money. And I've seen the food being sold on the streets um, by people who then go immediately and buy alcohol with uh, the money they got from selling the food that you gave them. There's a tremendous need for good stewardship of limited resources. It would be more responsible for us to channel our compassion to supporting Christian ministries who've proven their effectiveness in reaching out in love to help the poor, like the Salvation Army and so on. Biblical charity should not subsidize sin, nor should it encourage irresponsibility. But before we get down to practical strategies for the cure for poverty, 
and how to eradicate poverty, we should define poverty and consider what actually causes poverty. A definition of poverty could be an insufficiency of the material necessities of life. And the poor could be described as persons who do not have and are unable to obtain the means for sustaining life. If they are to survive, they are dependent upon the resources of other people. A biblical definition of the poor could be those who cannot sustain themselves because they are too old, too young, or too handicapped to work. Now, there are four broad categories under which all causes of poverty could be grouped. There's poverty caused by personal sacrifice. Just think, for example, a person who chooses to be a nun or a monk or, or pledges themselves to poverty. You know, just think of Bernard of Claveau or um, uh, Fra Francis of Assisi, for example. Uh, so there's sometimes personal sacrifice leads to poverty. There's also slothfulness or laziness that leads to poverty. And then there's calamities, earthquakes, floods, wars, and then there's exploitation, especially by governments. Now, the lazy or the indolent, the slothful, inevitably suffer the consequence of their sin. Proverbs 18 verse 9 said, He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. Proverbs 6 verse 9 to 11 says, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come upon you like an armed robber. And Ecclesiastes 10, 18 says, Because of laziness, the building decays. Through idleness of hands, the house leaks. The Bible makes it clear that it is a disgrace to be lazy. Lazy people always find excuses not to work. And some of the excuses are quite imaginative. One of them would be, you know, there's a line out in the streets, Proverbs speaks of. And, you know, a person's scared to go out because something could go wrong and so on. The Bible says those who love sleep will grow poor. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, we are told, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Moral poverty often dooms people to ongoing material poverty. So if a person is selfish, greedy, lazy, immoral, short-sighted, if they indulge in gambling or alcohol abuse, or they're addicted to pornography or indulge in prostitution and drug addiction, um, these are sins which are symptoms of a rebellion against the law of God. And these evils inevitably lead to poverty. You could actually walk around and give thousands of pounds or dollars to people in squatter camps and in ghettos and uh, to street people, and you would not improve their lot one bit because the money would be gone so fast it would make your head spin, spent on vice and just extraordinary how much money people can waste very quickly on gambling, on, on prostitutes, on alcohol, drugs, and other kind of vices, not to mention cigarettes and so on. And in fact, I've got people coming up to me, you know, saying that they are starving and hungry and need food. And you can smell the drink on them. And you can smell the smoke on them. Their clothes are full of smoke and their breath is full of alcohol. They've got money for alcohol. They've got money for cigarettes. They've probably got a cell phone in their pocket, uh, but they don't have money for food. So that's self-imposed poverty, slothfulness and indolence and vice. But then there's imposed poverty. The main causes of imposed poverty would be oppression or religious error. Oppression comes from governments or individuals who violate other people's God-given rights to life, liberty, and property. This takes the forms of fraud, theft, and violence. I could give the example of Zimbabwe, where the government's inflation, unbacked currencies, counterfeiting effectively, led to, I've got in my uh, display cases in our mission, 10 billion, 50 billion, 
and a hundred trillion dollar notes from Zimbabwe. And it's not that exciting. You can't exchange it in any bank. No money, no government wants um, Zimbabwe dollars. And you couldn't buy half a loaf of bread with a hundred trillion dollar note from Zimbabwe. And that hundred trillion dollar note came about after they had struck 16 zeros off the currency. One brick in Zimbabwe today would cost more than all the properties in Zimbabwe combined uh, back in uh, 1980 when communism began. So plainly, there's a lot of oppression that comes from government, socialism, excessive taxation, corruption, wastage, inefficiency, all of that causes uh, poverty. And there's unbiblical worldviews underlying the poverty of the third world. The fatalism and the reincarnation beliefs of Hinduism and Buddhism cause poverty. The material world is not perceived as real and difficulties are understood to be the result of deeds done in your per previous life. My karma is bad. I mean, some people use karma as a joke in the West, but it's not a joke in the East. Karma is taken very seriously and it's paralyzing to progress. That person is begging on the streets because they were not kind to beggars in the previous life and so they're suffering the results of their karma. And this person is, a, is paralyzed or this person is blind because of bad karma. And so they're getting their just desserts. And the animist worldview sees man at the mercy of outside forces, the spirits. And this leads people to be shackled by superstition and fear. Now, I've seen this, for example, I've been in the Zambezi Valley of Zambia, and there the people were starving. And we pointed out that they were within just a few hundred meters of the Zambezi River, the, one of the greatest rivers in the world. And there's the Zambezi River, millions of liters of water pouring past them regularly. And uh, what are they doing about it? And they like, well, the government must build a canal. Well, the government's not going to build a canal. You're going to have to carry buckets and carry the water through. You could build your own canal, but if not, why don't you just lift buckets of water from the Zambezi River, walk a few hundred meters, and you can um, you can irrigate your plants uh, quite adequately. Um, no, well, that's a lot of hard work. You could do this at the end of the day, just before sunset, so there won't be any uh, evaporation uh, overnight. You'll have chance for the water to seep into the earth. No, the government must. So the government or foreign aid or missionaries must do what the people themselves could do for themselves. And this is an animistic worldview. I'm at the mercy of the ancestors. I'm at the mercy of the chief. I'm at the mercy of the government. It's not my fault. I'm helpless. I'm a helpless victim. And then you get the fatalism of Islam, you know, inshallah, if it is the will of Allah, everything is the will of Allah. And the idea of this very strict fatalism, and I've come across this fatalism among some Muslims that Allah even predestines the amount of sexual sin a man must commit. A man must commit. He predestines even the sin we do. And this kind of fatalism can be, you know, I've been predestined to be poor or whatever it may be. Now, the poor by exploitation, such as the people in Zimbabwe, they need both direct charity to meet their immediate needs, and we take in boxes with love for pensioners and prisoners and pastors and widows and orphans and try to help people in Zimbabwe who are suffering because of an evil government. But they also need justice in the form of restitution from those who are exploiting them, and they need freedom from false religions and from oppressive governments. Then you get the poor by calamity, victims of floods, or earthquakes, wars, and they're the most appropriate recipients of charity. But this is not meant to be permanent. It's meant to be a temporary solution to help them uh, to become self-supporting again. Of course, the goal is to become self-supporting quickly. And the key question when you 
are faced by the disparity between rich and poor individuals and societies is not how did this man or how did this society become poor? Poverty is the natural condition of man. The question is, how did anyone become rich? Just like the question isn't how did somebody become um, a dedicated, hardworking Christian? Uh, that's the exception. What we need to realize is that uh, people can easily sin. You don't need to teach children to sin. People can sin naturally. People can be selfish and lazy and do all kinds of ridiculous, stupid, self-destructive things. That's natural. Um, it's, it takes effort and initiative in order to become product, productive and rich. And poverty is a consequence of the fall, man's fall into sin. Famines were commonplace before the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, England suffered famines an average of seven times per century. A third of the population of Bengal died in, of starvation in the great Indian famine of 1867 to 1870s, which is just one year. And there were similar losses experienced in India in, 18, in 1783, 1790 to 1792. India suffered a further eight famines from 1838 to 1901, well over nine million people dying of starvation. In one single famine in North China, from 1877 to 1878, over nine and a half million people died of famine. Only the Christian work ethic and the resultant industrial revolution brought the West out of recurring horrors of famine. A wooden plow drawn by oxen can provide food for one large family. By the 18th century, the new iron plow drawn by a horse could provide food for three families. So you could have one family farming, another two families now living in a city. By the 1940s, a tractor pulling a plow could feed 14 families. Now, advanced tractors, tools and techniques can enable one farmer to produce enough food for 60 families. In fact, in South Africa in 1994, uh, we had 70,000 white commercial farmers who fed 100 million people. 70,000 farmers were so productive they could feed four times the entire population of South Africa, which was at 28 million then, feeding 100 million people. And we were exporting food all over Africa. People were living off um, milli meal, for example, grown in Orange Free State and so on. It's an observable fact that the most efficient economies in the world are based on private ownership of property, honest money, free enterprise, and a Christian work ethic. Just take, for example, Netherlands, which, while it's a very, very small country, in fact, a lot of the countries reclaimed land from the sea, uh, Netherlands is the second largest food exporting economy on the planet, just after America. Uh, it's worth 100 billion euros a year, 100 billion euros a year, food exports from Netherlands, and yet you've got the Netherlands government trying to euthanize half the cattle in Netherlands and close down half of the farms in Netherlands because of the radical climate change cult and uh, this World Economic Forum idea to lower the amount of fertilizer used in the, in the soil. Well, Netherlands got a very intensive farming technique and some of the most efficient farmers on the planet, and half of them are meant to lose their jobs, their farms and their homes, uh, because of Mark Rutter's ridiculous World Economic Forum uh, goals for saving the planet from carbon and all of that. And yet the carbon emissions of the Dutch farmers' uh, livestock is much, much less than that of the factories. But the factories aren't being targeted, the farms are. There's a war against farms, there's a war against food, there's a war against um, fuel, and a war against freedom all over the world. And much of the third world is definitely in a shocking mess. One-party dictatorships, economic chaos, malnutrition, famine, civil wars, massacres and abject poverty are the norm in most of Africa. And I've seen that in the last 40 years of being a missionary. 
But who is responsible? Now, according to Vladimir Lenin, the colonials are responsible. And he's still got a lot of his followers and disciples in universities around the West claiming that the people are poor in, in um, the third world because of colonialism. It's some of the West's fault that people in the third world are so backward. And uh, Vladimir Lenin's um, disciples have been faithfully repeating its colonial fault for years. But contrary to the historic mumblings of these colonial phobiacs, some of the most poverty-stricken backward lands imaginable have never fallen under any Western colonial control. Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Nepal, Tibet, Liberia, they've never been colonies. Why were they backward? And some countries that were colonies, like Hong Kong, became so prosperous. In fact, Hong Kong at one point had a bigger economy than the whole of Red China. Because although Hong Kong had no natural resources, Hong Kong was a tax haven and a free enterprise. And because they respected property, Hong Kong grew in prosperity uh, beyond imagining. Some of the richest, most advanced Western lands, like Switzerland and Sweden, Norway and Denmark and Finland, never controlled any colonies in the third world. And some of the most advanced countries in the world used to be colonies, like the United States of America, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa. We ourselves were colonies, but it didn't stop us advancing. Actually, contact with the West brought far more benefits than disadvantages. And, for example, tea and rubber trees were foreign to Asia. And so rubber trees are not indigenous to Malaya. The colonials brought rubber trees to Malaya. And coffee is not indigenous to Brazil. Coffee was brought there by the Portuguese who picked it up in Abyssinia after a um, crusade to protect the Abyssinians from an Islamic jihad. Uh, they were rewarded with coffee trees, which they took to Brazil. In fact, uh, you know that the Romans brought uh, oak trees to Britain. Some of the main scars of colonialism that I've witnessed are roads, railways, schools, bridges, hospitals, the wheel, written languages, the Bible, and churches. So when they speak about the scars of colonialism, they're not being very honest. Because a lot of the scars of colonialism have actually been very helpful. Everyone likes roads and bridges and plumbing and electricity. The ancestor-worshipping, idolatrous religions have rendered whole civilizations powerless in the face of nature. And Bishop Badadura of Burundi maintained that unquestioning acceptance of nature and its vagaries is widespread in Africa. And he maintained local cultures are obstructing progress by wrong mental attitudes. When they see themselves as suffering history rather than making history, you're not at the mercy of nature, you should be taking dominion over nature. And he concluded the message of Christ frees people from the shackles of tribal thinking. The message of Christ leads to a greater sense of personal responsibility. And this has been documented by Lord Bauer in his book, Reality and Rhetoric. The tribalistic philosophies inhibit productivity and tribalistic or animist philosophies penalize accomplishments and they confiscate what little is produced. Animism teaches its adherents to regard themselves as helpless in the face of their surroundings, assuming that the opportunities and the resources for economic advance has to be provided by somebody else, by the state or by our superiors, by richer people or by foreigners from abroad. And that attitude, in turn, is an aspect of the belief in external forces over your destiny. I'm at the mercy of nature and of the ancestral spirits. And I've seen people who literally will go with a broom and hit the fruit tree to make much of the fruit fall early and rot on the ground. Why would you do that? And I've asked them. And they've said, well, they don't want to have better fruit uh, harvest than their ancestors or the ancestral spirits may be angry with them and curse them with disease and so on. And so the people literally 
will uh, sabotage their own fruit um, harvest in order to not have their neighbors envy them and not have their ancestral spirits curse them. I mean, how can you advance with that attitude? And uh, here's some some quotes from productive Christians in the age of guilt manipulators. The idea that it is evil to make personal economic progress takes hold of a people and fear of being envied prohibits growth and encourages poverty. And into this unhealthy situation comes foreign aid, which only increases dependence and corruption and greed and does not develop responsibility. The problems in the third world are not primarily political or economic. The problem is false religion and the pagan philosophies and worldviews, and therefore the solution has to be primarily religious. The world needs to be converted to Christ and discipled in the Christian faith. Church and mission-based relief would not only be more efficient than government and UN relief, but would inspire greater personal responsibility and greater economic productivity. Despite exhaustive imaginative efforts by so-called Christian socialists, which is an oxymoron, and their idea to promote socialism as true Christian love and sharing, the Ten Commandments still stands. Thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Socialism is legalized theft. Socialism is institutionalized envy. Socialism is the use of envy and guilt to manipulate productive Christians into committing economic suicide. Basically, a tax is a fine for doing well, while a fine is a tax for, for doing wrong. And so to penalize people for productivity and to subsidize and encourage people and reward people for being lazy is not very conducive to economic progress. The socialist doctrine of economic equality requires the stealing of property and the prohibition of economic freedoms. Socialism is not the pioneer of a better and finer world. Socialism is the spoiler of what thousands of years of civilization have created. Socialism does not build, it destroys. They might talk about build back better, but they don't build and uh, they might be backward, but nothing is better. And destruction is the essence of socialism. It produces nothing. It only consumes what the social order based on private ownership of the means of production has created. And that's a quote from Ludwig von Mises in Socialism and Economic and Sociological Analysis. To almost every problem in the world, socialism advocates state intervention. The government must, there should be a law, and so on. In this way, socialists insist on unbiblical powers for the government to interfere with and to control prices, markets, wages, jobs, profits, population control, education, movement. The inevitable end of increasing government interference and intervention is the erosion of personal freedom. Whenever the government interferes in the economy, the economy gets worse. And I've got examples of that. When I was in Russia, they said, you know, at one point, uh, you know, you, you couldn't get buttons, for example, not the right buttons, because first of all, the government said you've got to produce lots of buttons. And so um, they produced the smallest types of buttons. There were hordes of small buttons, so they meet, met the quota. Um, but it's easier to make lots of small buttons. But they didn't have the right sizes. They need some larger buttons too. And so next thing is the government started to mandate uh, the amount of buttons and weight. Well, if you're going to have government productivity determined in terms of weight, then the people made the biggest buttons. Now nobody could get small enough buttons. And it carries on like this. Every time the government interferes on in something, the market goes upside down. You need supply and demand. And you increase the demand, you increase the supply. Socialism destroys incentive. Socialism destroys initiative. And socialism destroys productivity. And the Soviet Union proves that. In 70 years, communism totally failed in every way uh, to produce the new socialist man and 
from each according to his ability to each according to his need and so on. And so there's all kinds of jokes about this. One of the jokes I heard when I was in Eastern Europe, ministering behind the curtain, back smuggling Bibles when it was illegal. And uh, I was told in Yugoslavia that a man went to the psychologist. He was depressed. And uh, when he was with the psychologist, he was shocked how many people there were in the uh, waiting room. So he took a number and waited all day. By the time he came in, he had forgotten what he had come there for. He said, doctor, I'm so sorry. I've forgotten what I came here for. And the doctor said, don't worry. Um, this happens all the time. Let me prompt you. Is it a, a working problem? He says, no, it's, it's not a working problem. There's no electricity most of the time. And when there's electricity, there's not enough raw material. So there's no work at work. He said, is it a financial problem? He said, no, there's nothing in the shops anyway. Um, so no, it's not a financial problem. So the doctor said, is it a marital problem? He says, yes, my wife and I can't agree. My wife says that socialism is scientific. I say it is political. Which of us is right? So the psychologist got up, he turned on the tap in the sink in the corner, he switched on the radio and turned it up higher, and he leaned forward and he said, you're right, it's political. If it was scientific, they would have experimented in animals first. And so this is the kind of jokes you'd get in Eastern Europe. And uh, I went to Romania, and uh, the people there said that there are three dogs. There's an American dog, a Russian dog, and a, and a, uh, and a Romanian dog. And so... The American dog says, I just like barking um, as much as I can until my owner throws me a chunk of meat and uh, uh, to quiet me down. And the Russian dog says, what's meat? And the Romanian dog said, what's bark? And that's the kind of jokes they've got there. Another one was, uh, the five-year plan is always accomplished. They're always talking about the socialist five-year plan. It says, the socialist five-year plan is always accomplished. But the market is always empty. The market is always empty, but we still applaud. And uh, it is that, uh, yes, nobody works. The first contradiction, nobody works, but the five-year plan is always accomplished. The five-year plan is always accomplished, but the market is always empty. The market is always empty, but the people have enough to eat. The people have enough to eat, but no one is satisfied. No one is satisfied, but we all applaud the five contradictions of socialism. And so you can see in the jokes where the people stand. Price controls create an imbalanced, chaotic market. Minimum wage laws result in unemployment. Profit restrictions increase consumer costs. And enforced economic equality leads to stagnation and destruction of initiative and more poverty. I mean, just imagine if you would run a university class the way you run a socialist economy. Imagine if you give everyone equal marks. Okay, this person's worked so hard, he's got 100%. Well, let's take away 25% of that and give that to the person who was busy at the party and didn't bother studying and uh, who's been lazy and so on. Let's give him some of the marks from the one who worked harder. What's going to happen after a while? The ones who worked harder are going to realize it's not worth it. I might as well go to the parties as well and sleep more because it doesn't matter how hard I work, the the uh, marks are going to be just shared out equally anyway. And so after a while, you'll get consistently, if you practice that, you'll find that the uh, results in the exams will get lower and lower, and you'll end up with a stupider class, which, of course, we're getting to. Now, concern for the poor has long been used as a justification of all sorts of crimes. Take Judas Iscariot, who is a thief. He's a prime example. Um, Judas expressed concern for the poor, but John chapter 12 says, 
Judas wasn't concerned for the poor. Judas wasn't charged of money bags and Judas was a thief. Envy is the greatest disease of our age. Envy is the feeling that because somebody else has something, he has to blame for my not having it. And the main motive behind envy is not so much to take as to destroy. Envy and malice are inseparable. Peace of mind makes the body healthy, we read in Proverbs 14, verse 30. But jealousy is like a cancer. Rather than wealth causing poverty, it's more true to say that what causes poverty is the widespread belief that wealth does. If we have needs, the Bible commands us to pray and to work and to trust God and to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The only thing that socialism has been able to provide its adherents with is a guaranteed income of Romans 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death, and those who hate God certainly love death. Well, those are some of the causes of poverty. We should deal with the cure. And the biblical principles for economics is honest money. Throughout the Bible, money is spoken of by weight. God's law requires that financial transactions are made in terms of honest measures. God hates and forbids unjust weights and measures. Inflation is unjust weights and measures. Fractional banking reserve is theft. Unbacked currencies, multiple indebtedness. This is theft. This is unjust weights and measures. In 1982, you could post a lead in South Africa for four cents. And then it went up to four rand or so. And now uh, our postal service has totally collapsed. We don't have a post office in South Africa. The socialist government has destroyed our post office. South African Airways hasn't flown in years. Um, our postal service is finished, and our electricity, which used to be some of the cheapest, most uh, reliable in the world, we have power failures of hours and hours and hours. The lights went out in my home at 10 o'clock last night, and they only came on this morning about 8 in the morning. And uh, that's not unusual. We can have sometimes 12 hours a day with no electricity. So everything the government takes over, they can destroy. And the Bible makes it clear Um Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's good. God blesses productivity, God blesses initiative and incentive, and he blesses hard work. Private ownership of property and the means of production is biblical. It's also foundational for freedom and prosperity. So we need honest money, and we need free enterprise, and we need a limited or constitutional government. Any taxation of 10% or higher is defined in the Bible as oppression. And the Bible also forbids any taxation of property. God forbid that you should tax property. God forbid that you should tax inheritance. Inheritance is not to be taxed. And institutions and individuals involved in the full-time service of the Lord may not be taxed. Because all the income comes from the free will offerings made as unto the Lord by people who have already paid their taxes and their incomes. Less government means more freedom and more personal responsibility. We should return to biblical economics where tax doesn't come anywhere near 10%, which is oppression. And in fact, we've got economic friends who've looked into it and said, if you just had a 1%, in fact, you wouldn't even need 1%, just half a percent uh, total economic activity le levy, TEAL, where half a percent of every economic transaction done electronically by banks would be deducted for tax. You could abolish VAT, GST, income tax. You could abolish all forms of tax and just replace it with total economic activity levy, which would be equal and fair across the board, including for companies who at the moment are exempt. And you'd get more money in than they're getting in right now. Now, that would be more fair. And a, a total reform of our tax system, half a percent, would be adequate uh, economic um, specialists have worked out. And then we need God-honoring charity. The biblical principle is we are responsible to care for our family first, and then through the church, community, and missionary organizations, 
we can express love for our neighbor in action. But this should be person to person, church to church, mission to community, direct aid based upon evangelism and discipleship. And all of this should be aimed to encourage responsibility and productivity. All God-honoring charity, short-term aid aimed at long-term eternal benefits. The goal is to help the victim of poverty get back onto their own two feet where they can in turn help others. And so that is biblical, not massive industries of so-called relief aid where the CEOs of these charity organizations receive salaries in hundreds of thousands and even millions a year and where they spend most of their money on marketing and very little on actually helping the people on the ground. And I've seen too much of this in Sudan and elsewhere around Africa to have any faith in the World Health Organization, the World Food Program and other massive organizations or World Vision for that matter, which has long deserted its Christian foundations. And uh, the Bible makes it clear, Matthew 25, Ezekiel 34, strengthen the weak, bind up the injured, care for the sick, share your food with the hungry, clothe the naked, invite in the stranger, look after widows and orphans. The Christian foundations for prosperity are laid in these basic principles, honest money, free enterprise, limited constitutional government, and God-honoring personal church-based charity. We need to limit government and we need to increase personal responsibility. Christians must respect one another's property. We must never steal. We must never cheat. We must always abide by contracts, be industrious in earning money, be disciplined in saving money, be wise in investing money, be obedient to God in tithing to Christian ministries. Be discerning and sharing with those in need. We should work all you can, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Biblical charity is, of course, primarily directed to widows and orphans and the handicapped, the deserving poor, as 1 Timothy 5 speaks of it. Biblical methods of charity include gleaning, which is hard work, but allowing the poor to go through your fields and pick up that which was dropped um, uh, by the first uh, harvest. Lending labor and tithes through the local church, all different ways that we can actually support a biblical ministry to the poor. The Bible makes it clear we are our brother's keeper. We shouldn't just give food or money. We should also give our time to share the love and the gospel of Christ personally. I saw this at work in Hillborough, which is a high-rise urban uh, mess in uh, South Africa, very close to Johannesburg. And so as a, as a part of the city that never slept, shops were open 25 hours a day, 365 days a year. And there's so much activity any time of day and night, and I do street evangelism there. And I saw, interesting thing is, the more you got people converted, the quicker they left the area. So people living in Hillbrow, and they're attending the bars and the nightclubs and all, all of the different vices around there. The moment you got them converted, they gave up drugs, drink, uh, prostitution, gambling and all that, cigarettes, and they suddenly had a lot more money. They became more uh, reliable at work, more punctual, uh, more productive. They got a raise, uh, they got promoted, and they left Hillbrow. They moved into the suburbs. And so the problem with church planting in Hillbrow is you were always working yourself out of a job because all of your converts would quickly move out of this Hillbrow urban mess, um, this urban ghetto situation, and they became a whole lot more productive. And so I saw that so much. And I could see the difference. When a person gets converted, the economics changes dramatically. You've got suddenly got all this extra money that you used to waste on vices that now can go for educating your children, caring uh, for the family, um, buying clothes for the children, shoes for the children. And then you've got money to care for the helpless and strengthen the weak. And as we begin to encourage others and coordinate our resources and network with existing programs, we can spearhead new efforts. Now, there's some interesting examples here on economics. When I got converted, 
um, back in 1977, the South African Rand was worth more than a pound and was worth more than $2. So it cost two American dollars to buy a Rand and we could get several pounds for just a few Rand because the Rand was stronger than a dollar and stronger than a pound. Well, by 1994, when Nelson Mandela was given South Africa and the ANC took over and introduced socialist ideas, black economic empowerment, um, the Rand degenerated to the point where now it's 19 Rand to the dollar and something like 20 something, 24 Rand or so to the pound. So our money has been debased. When I got converted, um, I managed to go out when I finished my military and training and I did, uh, I bought a motorbike for a thousand Rand. One thousand Rand bought me a brand new off-road motorbike, a scrambler out the shop window and on my first mission to Mozambique. Well, in the year 2000, um, I could only buy a bicycle for a thousand Rand. And by now, it's going to cost you about 4,000 Rand to buy a good pair of running shoes. So we've gone from 1,000 Rand being able to buy a motorbike in 1981 to being able to buy a bicycle in uh, 2000 to being able to buy uh, only a quarter of running shoes in the year 2024. Now, we've got reminders of how the economy should be. Every South African once and peace has sparrows on it to remind us that God cares for the very least. In Matthew 10, 29, Jesus said, uh, look at the sparrows, even though two of them are sold for a single coin, yet your Father in heaven cares for them. So to remind us that God cares for the very least, our one cent pieces, which unfortunately are not being used anymore because they've debased their currency so much, um, reminds us God cares for the very least. On every one rand coin, we have inscribed soli Dio gloria, soli to the glory of God, one of the battle cries of the Reformation. Every rand we spend should be to the glory of God alone. Solidio Gloria. I think that's even better than in God we trust, which is on the American dollars. God cares about every cent, and every rand we spend should be to the glory of God. We are told to pray, we're told to work, we're told to trust God, to be content, and we're told to be generous. And 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 to 8 says, God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that we need, we can abound in every good work. And so, plainly, the cause of poverty is socialism and false religion and false ideologies. And the cure for poverty is a Christian work ethic, a biblical worldview, and free market enterprise, honest money, limited government, God-honoring charity, uh, free enterprise. These are the foundations, the cure for poverty. And I think when we vote for political parties, let's look at where political parties stand. Uh, you may be interested to know that I had a website set up called savotersguide.org, which got destroyed, hacked and destroyed last year. And savotersguide.org um, is now uh, stolen. It redirects to some Hungarian corona page. And uh, I don't know why they would need our um, uh, name. But anyway, the savotersguide.org used to get a million visits in a given uh, year when it was an election year. Well, we've now rebuilt our savotersguide.org to savotersguide.org.za, adding on the ZA, or as Americans say, ZA. So that's now up and running to give biblical education on voting. And our voters' guides have been so effective. We've distributed hundreds of thousands of these leaflets, giving a, a guidance on what the different political issues are that uh, are concerned to Christian, like, is this party pro-life? Um, are they for free enterprise? Do they oppose the LGBTQ radical transgender agenda? Uh, do they stand for biblical marriage? And 
other key things like that. Do they support self-defense? Um, where does it stand as far as education goes? Do they stand for parental control of education or state intervention? And so these are key issues. And this Voters Guide website, savotersguide.org.za, is back up and running again. Another website that I set up, the Cape of Good Hope, also got hacked and destroyed. Uh, interesting, as we're entering into an election year where a referendum on Cape independence is uh, one of the key issues, that big tech destroyed our website. We had to rebuild it. So capeofgoodhope.africa um, online is now up and running again, thankfully, and people can see our case for secession and independence, which ties in with a book that just came out. So plainly, um, there's a lot of people in the globalist area that love socialism, even though socialism has a catastrophic a catalog of failure. Socialism has not meant to lift anyone up, but it has meant to drag a lot of people down. And so if we understand the causes of poverty and its cure, I hope it'll make us vote more wisely. Back to Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Yes, I was just, yes, um, I, was just I found the SA Voters Guide uh, website, savotersguide.org.za or ZA. Uh, and I was just inserting the link in the post for our show. So there's another website that uh, I've never seen before. I'm sure many of you listening haven't seen, but uh, please have a look at Peter's links and that will be included. Just scrolling down here. Um, what party shares your values? And you've got a list of different um, uh, policies that they have. One of them is rights of parents to discipline their children, and that's down the uh, left-hand um side and then you've got columns uh where all the different parties are listed and they get a green if they agree and a red if they don't so quite a very interesting and easy to understand way of looking at the policies of the various different parties and uh, seeing which most apply to your particular values a couple of other things i wanted to throw in before we go um, Peter talked about the Netherlands. I went into, I'll give you the search term in a minute because I'll have to click back for that. But in a country, in on a website called nationsonline.org, that was what came up. The Netherlands, that Peter said is the second largest exporter of food on the planet, is only the 134th largest country on the planet. It has a square kilometre area of 41,543 and the percentage of the la earth land area that it occupies is 0.03%. And to get that, I typed in, I think it will come up, um, how does Netherlands rank in largest countries in the world? That was my Google search term. Something else I wanted to mention is... Uh, I'll just put that in so I can scroll up and uh, check this. Uh, charities. Peter mentioned these charities that pay their CEOs hundreds of thousands of pounds a year. My mother knew a builder and he was approached to do, um, ask for, you know, a redevelopment, whatever you want to call it, a redeck of uh, a charity office in London. And the person who was dealing with the builder said to him we're a charity so money is no option money is no option or what was it he said basically it, it doesn't matter what it Mate, costs no concern yeah he, he basically no object. yeah he, he basically you know he, 
we can pay whatever is you know we want the best because we're a charity and uh, yeah so we can pay whatever to get the best for us so i've heard that as well that uh, these people seem to look after themselves a lot more than the uh, causes they claim that your money is going to and one only needs to look up the uh, scandalous story of the so-called Oxfam aid workers who I believe were found to be raping children in uh, Haiti is that correct Peter? Yes there's a lot of scandals with these as you can imagine if you get avarice people you can't expect their morals in other areas to be any better so it's extraordinary the amount of sexual abuse that goes on with these different charities. For example, we had uh, um, this uh, Oprah Winfrey had a um, a school in South Africa. And it turns out to have been a lot of physical and sexual abuse of the students in the school. And this is from somebody who's got such great um, indignation about uh, crimes of people of previous centuries, apparently. But uh, she's got no problem having a bunch of child abusers involved with um her so-called school in Africa. And then you can also think of these pe- people, there's pictures of uh, Oprah Winfrey sitting with a young underage girl introducing her to Harvey Weinstein and plainly involved in human trafficking. You think of the Harvey Weinsteins and the sexual predators and Jeffrey Epstein's, the sabotans of our time, and how many top leaders in media, Hollywood, banks, and in uh, government who involved with this who are complicit in child human trafficking and sexual abuse of children, as is well documented in the Sound of Freedom form, which is well worth seeing. Uh, that really exposed what we're dealing with. We've got a bunch of occultic pedophiles running the world, running the world of banks, Hollywood, much of the media, and that explains the content we're getting there. When you start to understand, at its core, we're dealing with occultists, child abusers, and human traffickers, slave dealers. That's the kind of people who are running the world right now. And... I think it's super important to just know that. Unfortunately, a lot of the aid agencies, some of the most powerful organizations on the planet too. You just think of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has crippled people by the hundreds of thousands with the vaccines in India. They banned from India because of all of that. And then they uh, sterilized a whole lot of uh, young girls in Kenya under the lie that they were immunizing uh, them against polio. And meanwhile, they were sterilizing them. And uh, this has been proven. There's all kinds of abuse. The abuse done by relief agencies, there's a good book out called uh, The Lords of Poverty. I actually should give a, a program on that some st- stage, Lords of Poverty. It's, it's a shocking expose of these massive relief agencies, which have massive budgets and which are just like crime syndicates. Sorry to say. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And the other thing... Um... You mentioned about um, professional beggars, things like that. I'll never forget my time in Gambia, or the Gambia, uh, one of the only times I've been to Africa. Uh, I was staying at a hotel, and um, there was a common sort of um, scam that went on where you'd be approached outside your hotel by someone who said that, uh, oh, they were in charge of cleaning your room and they were going to be away when you checked out. So, you know, could you give them their tip now? Okay. Another thing that they would do is they would come up, um, it would be men, and they would be saying that they need money for their baby formula milk for their wife. Um, I remember thinking uh, uh, something else that i saw going on um he even said before you went i think even in the brochure that it's good to take 
uh, sweets and um, ballpoint pens along to give out to the children there because they like things like that and they're all so poor. Um, but I saw when I was on a trip there, somebody, some guy turned around to one of the people on our tour and said, look, you know, one of the locals, what have you, give me the bag of sweets and I'll, you know, dole them out equally among the children. And then they found that he was selling them to the children. And I saw scam after scam in that country. And I was only there a week. But at one point, I turned around to my girlfriend at the time and I said, if these people spent as much time doing productive, honest work as they do trying to scam people, this might not be a third world nation. That was my thoughts, so Peter. True. Any comments before we so go? So true. I've got a lifetime of observing that. Uh, what you observed, very insightful, quite right. I'm sorry to say I see that all the time. And unfortunately, well-meaning Westerners and bleeding-heart liberals have only aggravated the situation and just fall into the trap with these criminals. We've got so many criminals. You, you've got to understand the depravity of man, which is a basic Reformation principle, to understand that, you know, um, the more you give, uh, the more it'll be abused. It's, you cannot separate charity from evangelism and discipleship and church discipline and fellowship. It's got to all go together. You can't just hand a whole lot of money to unregenerate people and expect them to not abuse it. Sadly, that's the reality of the world. And we as Christians need to be wise. Yes, in many cases, I'd say it's not just the abuse of foreign aid. Foreign aid has made Africa much, much, much worse than it would have been otherwise. It's not the solution. It's just part of the problem. Yes, indeed. Um, Peter, before we go, would you please let the audience know how they can contact you and where they can find your work? Yes, certainly. So my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za or za. And uh, our mission website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa, short for South Africa, frontlinemissionsa.org. We're on Facebook as well, Frontline Fellowship. You can find me, Peter Hammond, as well, on social media. Be very grateful to hear from anyone who is in South Africa in particular and would like to join in on some of our activities. Uh, so do contact me, Peter, at frontline.org.za. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Uh, fascinating show, as always, and uh, I like all of the shows that uh, I do with Peter, but this had something that really made me think on so many levels, but I'm sure many of you listening around the world will be able to adapt what Peter has said to the poverty that you see around you, and it will probably make you think differently about how you look at it. I have a guy who lives down my street. He lives in a tent, and, and he's always got his little cup out, um, and I've never given him anything because I don't think he should be there. Um, and I don't think that he is what he purports to be or claims to be or demonstrates to be. Um, I've seen him recently with other people, all drunk, all rolling round, or they might even be something else, drugs or what have you. Um, the problem that I have is Peter talks about supporting Christian groups. I don't know of any Christian groups in this country that's not been, you know, corrupted and, and uh, told false doctrine that they now promote. And that's why the only uh, organisation, Christian organisation I promote are, is Peter's organisation, Frontline Fellowship. I don't know of any others, any mainstream Christianity. 
uh, if it's the Church of England or if it's a Catholic church, you can see it has all been corrupted. These people will all give you uh, not the Christianity that Jesus Christ talked about in the Bible. You will not hear any of these leaders or uh, priests or vicars or what have you quoting from the book of John, for example, in the Bible, John chapter 8 in particular. You won't hear them talk about the synagogue of Satan. So many different things, which is incidentally what we are told to watch out for in the end times and it's very easy for them to look at the amount of things being promoted in societies today that are non-biblical and are declared sins and blasphemies due to biblical law but they don't talk about it and they don't reference that to the synagogue of satan i'm sorry i went on that tangent there peter but please give your comments on what i just said and then we will wrap it up it's so important to be sure that our uh, charity is linked to evangelism. So, for example, I will carry in my car um, some tins of food and some uh, loaves of bread and sometimes some mori biscuits and things like that. And I've got a bunch of tracks and I will hand out at the traffic light selectively to people. I see some food. With a, they're always get an evangelistic track that's very accessible and readable in their language. I've got a variety of languages with me. And uh, so I, I try and give some some food with um, an evangelistic uh, leaflet, and I try to talk to people, sometimes pray with them. What I've found out is actually quite shocking. You know, I've found people from Rwanda who uh, are the right age that they would have been part of the Interhambury mass murderers when the massacre took place. Are you going back to Rwanda? No, I can't go back to Rwanda. Why not? You know, what tribe are you in? They're the wrong tribe. They're the tribe that did the genocide in Rwanda, and they've moved here, and they must have been, they must be wanted for murder if they go back to the home country. And here they are begging in Cape Town, uh, in my suburb, you know, the idea of having a mass murderer where my children walk is a bit disturbing, but you want to know what's going on. And so a bit of interaction and talking to people and always make sure that evangelism is linked with, with what we are doing. Um, it's so important because unfortunately, I think we've become very unthinking and before we know it, we are enabling uh, the very vices that we should be staying against. So yes, super important for us to, um, be thoughtful in our support and discerning, and otherwise we could do more damage than actually good. Thank you so much, Peter. Right, we'll end the show there. I want to thank Peter so much for such an excellent presentation today, the real story of what causes poverty and its cure. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I will be back with you next Tuesday. I'll be back with you on Saturday. And until then, folks, have a wonderful week, a wonderful day, and bye for now.